Well, last week we explored the topic of Christian forgiveness from Matthew chapter 18, uh, to which I would invite you to turn in your copy of Scripture. Um, It came about because of a question posed in verse 21. Peter asked in verse 21, he said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? The question was no doubt prompted by Jesus' teaching in earlier verses, specifically Matthew 18, verse 15. In verse 15, Jesus tells the disciples, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. And so here we see the heart of our Lord to go after straying sheep who are caught in sin and bring them to restoration through confession and repentance. And so, if your brother or your sister sins particularly against you, we are not to pretend like it doesn't matter. We don't sidestep or minimize the sin. We don't make excuses for sin. Rather, Jesus tells us to go, to go to our brother or sister who is in sin and confront them lovingly. If they recognize their transgression and they repent, Jesus celebrates with us and he says, you have won your brother and the matter is over. You don't keep on rehashing it over and over again. You don't hold a grudge against them. You don't gossip about them to other people. You forgive them and then you move on. Now we know that this is the Lord's intended meeting because of Jesus's, or excuse me, of Peter's response in verse 21. Now again, going just back a step or two, we are not to keep on going with this and rehashing and holding a grudge. Peter asked the question, verse 21, he came to Jesus and he said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And then he says, up to seven times, thinking there's got to be a limit somewhere. And ancient rabbis, we talked about this last week, ancient rabbis put a limit on forgiveness because they taught that you could forgive somebody three times, but the fourth time was beyond forgiveness. At a certain point, they've just used up all the grace they're going to use up, and, the, and you just can't forgive them anymore. So Peter offers a more gracious response, and he says, well, maybe not three like the rabbis say, but what about up to seven times? Verse 22, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven The point is not to assign a number to the times we are to forgive. Rather, his concern is that we manifest a charitable heart that desires to extend forgiveness and to do so continuously, continuously. This led us into an exploration into the nature of true forgiveness. Because we noted last time that every sin, every sin incurs a debt, a debt that must be paid. And the question is, well, paid to whom? Ultimately, the answer is paid to God. Every sin incurs a debt that is owed to God. The Bible prescribes a kind of payment or atonement for that sin that is required to satisfy our debt, and that is the blood of an innocent. Now, in the Old Testament, that innocent blood was typified through animal sacrifice, even though we know that the sacrifices themselves could not ultimately, in the end, provide true atonement. They were only a shadow, a type, demonstrating what this actually looks like, but it's in the New Testament that the Bible teaches us that it's actually the blood of Jesus Christ. He alone can atone for our sins. That's why John the Baptist, when he sees him, says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so, again, our sin incurs a debt, Christ supplies the payment, 
and by repentance and faith it is received and applied to us. And so Christ's blood covers all of our sins, and by his sacrifice we then have forgiveness. And that is what forgiveness is, if we have to define it. It's a payment made for our transgression, and it's a removal of the debt that that sin causes. And that's how God forgives. He pays our debt by sending His only Son, Jesus, to die on the cross for us. And through the sacrifice of His Son, we have the forgiveness of our sins. And the Bible furthermore teaches us, and we even heard this morning already in Ephesians 4.32 at the end of Scott Horton's reading there, that we are to forgive, well, how? We're to forgive others the way that God forgives us. We are, we are to release them from their debts by covering the hurt ourselves. Again, not by diminishing or excusing the sin, not by ignoring or downplaying it, but by covering it in love. And so when another person sins against you, We are to confront them in love, and when they confess, you are to forgive. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, beloved, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. The Lord models forgiveness for us, and He sets the standard for how we are to do it. So we are to forgive like the Lord forgives, yet Jesus knows that our temptation will be to hold a grudge. Our temptation will be to become resentful against other people or to nurse bitterness. That is always our sinful bent, isn't it? To to not do the right thing, but to do the wrong thing. In fact, oftentimes, prolonged hurt feelings are nothing more than bitterness in disguise. And the disciples, they no doubt struggled with this, which is why the Lord followed up with the parable to illustrate the need for true forgiveness. And so we're in Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 23. We're going to read the parable, then we're going to go back through it here. Jesus says this, For this reason the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him saying, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave the debt. But the slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So this fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he, could, until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported it to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave! I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should, not, should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. And then Jesus concludes with this, My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. 
This parable is oftentimes called the parable of the unforgiving servant, and a brief read through that parable shows us why. But Jesus is using this parable to illustrate the need for forgiveness as well as warning the dangers of failing to forgive. And so building on verses 21 and 22, he begins in verse 23, for this reason the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. Now, just as uh, one uses parables to teach on the kingdom, Jesus oftentimes will teach on the kingdom in parables. He does so because the doctrine of the kingdom is so uh, difficult for us to comprehend. It's easy for him. He understands the kingdom just fine. But when we have to understand the kingdom, it's difficult. And why is that so difficult? Well, because the kingdom, the doctrine of the kingdom of God, involves the rule and reign of Jesus Christ both now and in the future. And many of these elements we don't know how much are now and how much are the future. It also deals with the issues of sin and judgment and salvation and even human government and so on. And so it's a massive topic. Whenever you, I remember I took a, a, a class just on the kingdom of God in seminary. The whole class is just on this one topic. I wrote papers, I read books, and I came away and I was still having a hard time understanding all the nuances of the kingdom. It's a massive topic, but Jesus deals with it in many different aspects, and at different times he will approach different elements of the doctrine of the kingdom, and a lot of times he'll use parables to illustrate this doctrine. Well, why did he do that? Well, because a parable is a very simple story that can be used to teach a greater spiritual truth or theological reality. And so here, Jesus is addressing the notion of sin and judgment and forgiveness in the kingdom. Remember, he's only sectioning off this one little portion of the kingdom to talk about, and it's sin, judgment, and forgiveness. Therefore, he says the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. Now, this is no doubt referring to the event of the last days when God stands in judgment of all people. And on that day, everyone is brought before him and judged based on what they have done in their lifetime. And so verse 24 introduces us to a particular servant who owes a great debt. Look at verse 24. And when he began to settle, settle them, meaning the accounts, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. I want to pause right there. It's easy for us because we're unfamiliar with ancient currency to not really understand the, the magnitude of the situation here. Jesus says that this man owed a debt of 10,000 talents. Well, just to give you some idea... One talent, so in terms of the measure, one talent is approximately 75 pounds. 75 pounds. And the question is, well, 75 pounds of what? Well, if we're talking about debt, we're most likely talking about currency. Most of their currency was measured out in either silver or gold, along with other things, precious stones and whatnot. And so it's hard to really know exactly what we're talking about here, but one talent, so 75 pounds, let's just say 75 pounds of gold, again, one talent, that's a lot of money, isn't it? That's a lot of money. And Jesus says, this man owes 10,000 talents. I did some math this week, because I have fun doing this kind of thing. If one talent is 75 pounds, then we're talking about times 10,000 talents, 750,000 pounds of precious metal. If that's in fact gold, if that's what Jesus is thinking about in the story, According to today's price on gold, that's somewhere in the neighborhood of $12 billion. $12 billion. 
And the question is, well, how could one person possibly amass such a debt? Well, if the servant was some kind of high-ranking official, or maybe a governor, he could have been responsible for a whole town or a whole region, and maybe he failed to manage this, this amount of money and this amount of debt. Maybe it was through wrongdoing. And we don't really know any of the details from the parable because, again, it's just a parable. Jesus is essentially saying, a man owed a billion, trillion, zillion dollars. That's kind of how we're supposed to read this. This is a lot. Anybody in this day and age, 10,000 talents, they would be looking at him and going, what are you talking about? I don't even know that. There's, just not, there's not even enough money in all of Israel to cover that kind of debt. But that's the idea. This man owes 10,000 talents, $12 billion in today's economy, verse 25. But since he did not have the means to repay, that's a little tongue-in-cheek, don't you think? He doesn't have the means to repay. His Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. Now, the king is selling this man and his family. That's not going to recuperate very much money at all. Not to this, to this tune of 10,000 talents, but at least it's some level of remuneration. I remember a couple years ago, I was in the financial services industry in 2008, and I remember when Bernie Madoff was sentenced to 150 years in prison for defrauding investors of $64.8 billion. It's a lot of money. Now, when the regulators were able to get to his, his house and to his, uh, his assets, they were able to recover about $14 billion to pay back to investors once they seized everything. But at a certain point, there's nothing else you can recuperate. The money's gone. At a certain point, all you can do is stick the guy in jail for the rest of his life and then some. And that's the situation here. Because of this man's extreme indebtedness, there's nothing else he can do. There's no way to get the money back. It's absolutely beyond him in terms of repayment. And so the king has no choice but to sell him, sell his family, liquidate his assets, and just throw him in jail. And that's it. What does he do? Verse 26. The slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him and saying, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. This is a really sad comment, isn't it? I mean, this poor man, he's about to lose everything. Now, I, we, get, we don't know his situation. Maybe he was kind of a sleazy guy and did things the wrong way, but the bottom line is he's about to lose his family, everything he has, his livelihood. He's going to get sold to someone who's going to probably put him into more serious indebtedness or servitude. This man just throws himself on the mercy of the king and says, have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. What else can he do? I mean, what else does he have to offer? He has nothing else to offer. I'll pay, I'll do everything I can if you just have patience with me. He throws himself on the mercy of the king, and he says, I will repay. Now, this is actually kind of foolish, isn't it? There's no way he's ever going to pay back 10,000 talents, $12 billion. How could he possibly pay that back? There's not a chance on heaven or on earth, it's just not possible. But in desperation, he offers to try, and it's a futile effort. He's finished, though. Verse 27, And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. That's shocking. How could you possibly relieve a debt of that size? How would you do that? Why would you do that? But that's not the point here. Seeing that this man has nothing at all and is completely without hope, the king does three things here. Number one, 
he feels compassion for him. He feels compassion. This gets to the heart of the matter. His heart, his, his guts, his bowels, as the old English would say, just reached out to him. It's almost like he could just take his heart out of his chest and give it to the man. He felt compassion from his inside guts. And number two, he released him. He saved him from being sold off and from being imprisoned to somebody else along with his whole family. He released him. And then number three, he forgave the debt. This word forgive, Ephemi in the Greek, is this king, he sent it away, he forgave it, he canceled out the debt for him. The debt is all of a sudden, in one foul swoop, gone. This is the nature of true forgiveness. Don't we learn something here, even just from this portion of the parable? True forgiveness is from a loving and compassionate heart. It releases others from their debts from their prison, from their punishments, and then it pays their debt for them. It cancels it out completely. And so it's a love, it's a release, and it's a removal. It's hard to fathom. I mean, just think about this for a second. Could you forgive $12 billion? I would even just bring it, ratchet it down to to our human level. Could you forgive a million dollars? Say somebody burned down your house and you have no insurance, could you forgive them $300,000, dollars $500,000? Could you just forgive that and say, I, I will take it on myself, I will forgive you for your wrongdoing? Could you do that? Could I do that? It's remarkable that the king does this. He forgives. I don't know how the king did it, but he did it. He forgave this servant, this slave. But the story's not over. Look at verse 28. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii and seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. Fresh out of the king's court, the forgiven slave goes out, and the first thing he does is he tracks down one of his equals, one of his fellow slaves who owes him some money. How much does he owe? Jesus notes a hundred denarii. Well, one denarius is is a one day's wage, so it's about a hundred days' wages, so depending on what a day's wage in our economy is, call it 15,000 bucks, call it 10,000, call it 20,000, somewhere in that category. Now, it's not a small amount. $15,000 is a lot of money, right? But it's nowhere near the $12 billion that was just forgiven the slave. Not even close. A world of difference. And yet, this slave, he goes, and the text says that he seizes him by the neck and begins to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. And what does this poor slave do? Verse 29, so the fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, have patience with me, and I will repay you. It's the exact same plea as verse 26. Word for word, it's the same thing that he says to his master, in whom his debt was $12 billion, the same other slave comes and says the same thing, forgive me, or he says, uh, have patience with me and I'll pay you back everything. It's the same scenario, except with the king, he received mercy, and now he's demanding repayment. But here, this, this man is choking out a fellow slave for fifteen grand, And when he begs for mercy, what happens? Does he finally relent? Does he come to his senses and say, wait a second, I shouldn't be doing this, I was forgiven. Is that what he says? Look at verse 30. 
But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he could pay back what was owed. This is the very opposite of what the king did. No patience, no compassion, no mercy. This is shocking, frankly. I would say more than that, it's maddening to conceive of this level of hard-heartedness. Look at verse 31. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved, just like we are right now. They were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. The others were looking on this debt. They were shocked. They were grieved. In fact, this kind of malice is distressing for us to watch in the world. Whenever we see somebody treating someone else like that, it bothers us, doesn't it? It rattles our cage a little bit. It's not right that somebody should be so merciless to somebody else, to rub their nose into their own transgression, to to make them pay. That doesn't feel right in our conscience, does it? We struggle with that, and these other slaves who watched this happen, they did too. And so they go and they tell the king, and how does he respond? Look at verse 32. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? The king here becomes enraged. He becomes angry. He calls him a wicked slave. The Greek word is poneros. It means bad or evil or even worthless. Note this, though. The king doesn't call him a wicked slave when he owes him 10,000 talents. Notice that? That's when you should call him a wicked slave. You, you moron. How did you amass $12 billion and think you could get away with it? Does he become enraged? Does he choke him out then? Does he call him wicked then? No, he has compassion then. It's here It's here that he becomes enraged and says, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. How do you think he should have responded? With thankfulness, maybe? With humility? With sober-mindedness? If you've been forgiven all that debt, maybe a sense of charity toward other people? I mean, when you have that burden lifted off you, this 10,000-talent burden lifted off you, the next day would be the best day of your life, don't you think? You'd be like Ebenezer Scrooge and like pouring, you know, giving out money and buying turkeys and stuff, right? That's what forgiveness does. It, it lightens our burden. It creates thankfulness. It lowers us down. It sobers us up. It gives us love for other people, rejoicing even. Instead, he acted, he acted as though he were the angry king who was owed a great debt. He was treating that hundred denarius or denarii, the, the, the $15,000, like it was $12 billion. Choking out a slave saying, you pay me what you owe. But the question posed by the king in verse 33 is most certainly a rebuke. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? Did you learn nothing not to have mercy? The servant should have manifested a heart of compassion, a heart of mercy, the heart of the king. How does he respond to this wicked slave? Verse 34, 
and his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. Notice that the king is now moved with anger. He wasn't angry at the debt that was amassed. Rather, he becomes angry when the, when the slave is merciless towards someone else after he had been forgiven. In fact, the slave's actions toward the fellow slave, they were a slap in the face to the king who forgave him. It's an insult to the king, isn't it? I forgave you all of that, and you're going to go act like this? That's insulting. If I would have known how malicious you would have been to just revert back to the original plan, I would have just sold you and your family anyway. But the punishment is now more severe. Look at this, more severe. Instead, he hands him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. Now at that point, is a slave ever going to have any chance of repaying the, the, the amount of debt that he owes, the monstrous debt that he owes? Never. So the king has not consigned him just to jail. He's consigned him to torture for as long as he lives. And so this punishment is only and indefinitely torture. What a horrible end to this wicked and merciless slave. But then Jesus does something here in the course of the narrative. He turns the tables and he makes application to the hearer. Look at verse 25. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. This is sobering. He's talking to the disciples about their own question regarding forgiveness. However, the parable is making application to all of us, isn't it? Now, a parable is just a parable. It's not meant to be some kind of an allegory where it lines up with every single facet, right? It's just teaching us a general truth, but the, ki the king here is certainly our heavenly father, certainly. And the servants, we are his servants. In fact, Paul in Romans 8, 6, uh, uh, 6, 18 calls us slaves of righteousness. So we are more than servants. We're actually slaves of God. We're slaves of righteousness. When, we're not, when we don't belong to God, the Bible says that we're slaves of unrighteousness and slaves of sin, but we're actually slaves of God, slaves of righteousness. And each of us individually has amassed a sin debt greater than 10,000 talents, greater than 10, $12 billion. Because count the cost. Consider your own life. How many loved ones have you hurt in your lifetime? How many harsh words have you uttered to somebody else? How many curses? How many blasphemies? How many times have you taken God's precious name and turned it into a curse word? How many times have you hurt your friends or your family or your spouse or your children? Those transgressions aren't just nothing. That creates a wound, especially when I consider a parent to a child. That kind of a wound oftentimes is a lifelong wound if there's no confession, there's no forgiveness attached to it. When, when you, I remember hearing a story about a, a father who called his son an idiot, and then the father somehow either died or wasn't out of the, was out of the picture at some point. Well, that one word followed this man for his entire life, 
And every single time he did something wrong, he heard his father's refrain in his mind, you idiot, you idiot. It followed him his entire lifetime. How much weight, how much burden of sin is that? Could you put a price on that kind of damage in a person's soul? And that's one word. However, our sins against other people are microscopic in compared to our sins against the Lord. The God who is so holy and so pure and so righteous, our rebellion and our faithlessness and our blasphemy and our self-sufficiency and our idolatry and our fleshliness. The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Our hearts are idol factories, as John Calvin used to say, deceitful and desperately wicked, Jeremiah 17, 9, evil continuously. But God, but God, Ephesians 2, 4, being rich, $12 billion is nothing to a God who's rich. God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. We owed him a sin debt that we could never hope to pay, ever. And yet, he felt compassion for us. His heart went out to us. And in doing so, he sends his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to shed his blood on the cross and make a payment for sin. His sacrifice was enough, was sufficient enough to pay a debt not just for 10,000 talents, but for millions and billions and trillions of talents of our debt. More, More than we could ever hope to accomplish in our lifetime and then some. And because of Christ's atonement, God is able because of his payment, to release us from bondage and forgive us of all of our debt forever. And by the cross of Christ, he has canceled out the certificate of debt against us. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, Colossians 2.14. And so you who are in Christ are no longer slaves, at least slaves of sin. Rather, If you're in Christ, you've been adopted as children, made heirs of the kingdom, treated as friends of God, and yet, and yet, you harden your hearts against other people, and you become embittered toward them, and you choke out other people with your words, and you imprison them with guilt and shame. And when we do that, you know what the Lord says to us? You wicked slave. Don't you realize how much you've been forgiven by the Lord? I think our lack of forgiveness is in direct comparison to the fact that we don't understand the debt to God that we owed. We don't understand the gravity of our sin. We don't understand the holiness of God. We don't understand how much we have needed to be forgiven. Because if we just got an inkling, a little tiny view of how much sin debt we owed and how great the grace of God is toward us, we would melt in an instance and we'd walk around forgiving everybody. And if that's the case, if that's you, then you ought to be on your face before the Lord asking Him to open your eyes and not to give you over to your own sinfulness. The truth is, 
Christians are those who have been forgiven a great debt. If we could drive around in our car with a bumper sticker, and it could be one word, it would be this, forgiven. Not good person, not high church attendance, not self-righteous, not deserving, not worthy, forgiven. We had an insurmountable debt, a debt that works could never pay. No amount of work I could ever do in this life could ever pay or satisfy that debt. And in response to such forgiveness from God, how should we be toward other people? Ephesians 4.32 seems to be our theme verse today. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other. Here's the hitch right here. Here's the connection point. Forgiving each other just as God in Christ forgave you. In direct correlation to how much forgiveness you have received from the Lord, give that out to other people in measure. Forgive as you have been forgiven. Now, does forgiveness simply mean that we ignore all the sin and just hand out, dole out forgiveness and doesn't really matter? Well, of course not. That's the whole point of Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17. That's why this part comes first, by the way, because we are to deal with sin. Jesus has already told us what to do. If your brother sins against you, go and talk to him. Go and share what this is. In the case of the Father and the Son, go to your dad and say, Dad, you really hurt me. You you said those words to me, and they've been plaguing my heart. They've been hurting me so bad. And if the Father has any sense of justice or loving kindness in his heart, he's going to look at his poor son and say, I'm sorry. That was wrong. I hurt you, please forgive me. And then there's the possibility of reconciliation. And so, yes, we are to go to them, to plead with them. Forgiveness doesn't mean non-confrontation. However, once they have confessed, once they have repented, yes, you are to forgive. Now, there may be times when their apology is not as extensive as we hoped it would be. Ever, ever go to somebody and they apologize and it just doesn't feel like it goes far enough? Ever happened to you before? Or maybe they've apologized for some of the wrongdoing but not all of it. I'm sorry I said this and they ignore the thing over here that they said. Or maybe they just haven't repented at all. Or maybe they won't repent. Or maybe they can't repent. There are those who have been sinned against and the person who sins against them dies. And they're gone, and there's no way to have any kind of reconciliation with that person. So what do you do? What are you stuck with? Well, if you can confront them lovingly, and graciously reconcile, and mercifully restore, then do it. However, Romans 12, 19, we saw this last week, says that we are never to seek our own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. But what if we're not after vengeance? What if we want to reconcile, but it's just not happening? Just the the cogs are just stuck and they're not moving. Jesus says, forgive your brother or your sister from your heart. From your heart. I think that's those are important words here in the passage. What does this mean? It means that you, 
you forgive them and release them in your own heart. And in doing so, you cast off resentment, bitterness, anger. Now, you may not be reconciled to them. They haven't come back to you. There hasn't been any kind of restoration of relationship. Maybe they haven't sought forgiveness. But that's between them and the Lord at that point. If you've gone to them and you've done everything that you can do and they just won't respond, what more can you do? Sure, you can ratchet up church discipline until they're gone, but they're still gone. Jesus says instead, you forgive them in your heart. And one day, if they seek to come to you and apologize to you, I heard the story last week of somebody who that situation took place, there was sin, and they came back 20 years later and apologized. 20 years later. But one day, if they do come back, you will actually be able to extend forgiveness. And if you don't forgive and it goes 20 years, that's a long time to have a grudge, isn't it? That's a long time to be bitter and resentful against another person. Because here's the thing, your level of bitterness doesn't stay at the ground level, does it? The longer that you don't reconcile, the longer longer that you don't forgive, your bitterness just keeps on growing and growing until the bitterness becomes greater than the transgression. And so, you forgive them in your heart, and then when they do, and if they do come back to you and ask for forgiveness, guess what? You can forgive. And you can honestly say, I forgive you. And the sweetness now is of the restoration, but the forgiveness has already been done. And in truth, you already forgave them years ago, but you're just now telling them about it. Ephesians 4.31, the verse right before the one we're talking about today, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. If any of that is inside of you because of bitterness, because of someone else's transgression, you have to let that go. You have to remove that by offering forgiveness from the heart. From the heart. Don't risk the anger of God on you because you won't forgive your brother or sister. Don't risk Him saying to you, you wicked slave. I forgive you all that debt and you're, you're going to hang on to bitterness now? Don't risk that. As Christians, we have been forgiven much, therefore we should be the ones who are most forgiving of other people. We should be a people marked by forgiveness. Why? Because we, more than all people in the entire world, have been the recipients of great and immeasurable divine forgiveness. And so, brothers and sisters, yes, if someone sins against you, go to them. Go to them. In humility, we've talked about this for the last several weeks, go to them in humility, go to them in gentleness, go to them in love, earnestly, seek to reconcile, seek to make things right. If it's a brother or sister and you have to keep on moving and bringing someone else along, yes, you keep on going, but there comes a certain point that you must forgive. Because if you don't, and this is my pastoral concern for all of you, If you don't forgive from the heart, from the heart, you will be eaten alive by bitterness and resentment. And you will be impossible to deal with, not just on the church level, your family, your friends, your spouse, 
and you'll have a heart that is hardened against the Lord. And so don't let that happen to you. Don't let your heart grow hardened and bitter toward other people. Recognize how much you've been forgiven and rejoice in that. And if you have sinned against the Lord, maybe you're here today and you don't know what I'm talking about because you don't know Christ. If you've never put your trust in Christ, if you've never confessed your sins to God and been forgiven of all of your life of sin, your 10,000 talents of sin that you've accrued in your lifetime, if you've never done that, God is offering forgiveness through Jesus Christ. His death on the cross is enough payment to cover all of it. So repent of your sins, turn away, confess to the Lord, God, I have sinned against you. Have compassion toward me. Be patient with me, O Lord. Forgive me. And the Bible tells us that he will. And he has the right to because he's paid for it through his son. He will forgive you. He will give you eternal life. And now, as the Bible says, there is there now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You've been forgiven. And so therefore, having been forgiven of God through Christ, you can then begin to heal and to forgive those who are in your own life. And if you have sinned against other people, go to them that they might forgive you. This is so important, beloved. So important. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank You. We thank You for this text of Scripture. And Lord, even though this chapter, Matthew 18, which we're finishing today, Matthew 18 is just cut like a scalpel into our heart and soul. Every single week it just presses in deeper and deeper into us, Lord. And it convicts us. The Word of God convicts us that there's not a single one of us that this doesn't apply to. All of us have sins. All of us accrue a debt against others and against you. All of us are in need of confessing our sins. All of us are in need of forgiveness. And all of us who have been sinned against are in need of forgiving other people. And so, Lord, this is so germane to who we are. And yet, Father, we we confess to you that we struggle to do it. In our own humanness, in our own fleshliness, this is hard for us, Lord, because what if we can't forgive? What if we struggle? What if they hurt us again, Lord? What if we just, what if we're plagued by this? What if we can't sleep, Lord? What do we do? Well, I'm reminded even just now, we are to cast our cares on Christ because, oh Lord Jesus, you care for us and you tell us to come to you if we are weary and heavy laden and you will actually give us the rest that we need. And yet, in that rest, you tell us to forgive others, to forgive them, because you have so richly forgiven us. So, Lord, I pray that you would help this body of believers, our church, individual believers, to grow in our forgiveness, in our desire to forgive others. And, Lord, also help us as we seek to turn in the next couple of weeks that if we ourselves have committed sins, that we wouldn't harden our hearts, but we would actually repent and seek forgiveness. Help us to do this, Lord. We know that we can because of Christ. And so we pray in His name for all these things. Amen.